0: I was an 18-year-old film student when I met the master of special effects to make this documentary about his life and work. Now, 30 years on, I will reveal Hollywood's greatest untold story of movie magic. Now, for the first time, the secrets have been unearthed for those unmade films. Missing scenes from the films you love, stunning artworks, models and test footage, all revealing new worlds, epic lands and fearsome creatures that until now had thought to have been lost for all time. The Lost Movies. Hello, and welcome to episode twenty-seven of the Ray Harryhausen
1: podcast. I'm John Walsh, and I'm joined by our collections manager Connor Heaney. Hello, Connor. Hello, John. And uh, looking forward to an action-packed episode with uh, with lots of different contributions from uh, from various people. Yes that's right this is our Harryhausen The
0: Lost Movies episode special. So this is based on the book that um, that I've written. It's taken me two years to write it but it's been 100 years in the making if you think that it's Ray Harryhausen's centenary next year. So not to over dramatise things but um, didn't they say something about similar about Jurassic Park it was a million years in the making. <laughs> so but I think we can genuinely say 100 years can't we Connor?
1: Yeah, no, that that's true because these uh, these projects, uh, sorry, these projects date back uh, the best part of a century in some instances, and it's been fascinating to to delve into all of these decades of creativity. Now we've
0: got lots of clips to talk about here, and we're going to have some external contributors, but I think for our regular listeners, they're probably quite keen to find out what the process was, how we managed to put things on the page, how we found the stories, and of course your involvement, Connor, because. It wasn't a simply a case of, oh, there you go, pop that in the book, and if only it was. Um, it, w- it was quite um, quite a task. But um, let- let's kick off first with um, one of our prestige interviews. I spoke with Terry Gilliam about all things Ray Harryhausen, and this was done at the time of Ray Harryhausen's memorial uh, back in 2013.
2: Um, let's have a listen to uh, to Terry. I just thought it was absurd that people, you know, were so excited about digital animation. I said, no! Digit! Digital! Fingers! Those are your digits, and that's what Ray did. I mean, and I still am astonished when we see these clips today. Just." what he achieved I haven't seen a lot of the films for a long time and we get so used to you know CG work computer work which is all done it's it's okay it's perfect but it has no life in it there's a great difference so I think we're living in a very interesting age where now we can do things in perfection but there's no soul there's no humanity there's no quirkiness all the things that make something alive and interesting and Ray I don't know how you do that but I mean I from animation, I know how to push pieces of paper around. But that's not the same as what he was able to do with these very small figures. That When you see them on screen, you know, they're standing 100 feet high, and they're real. <laughs> I mean, it's it's like a lot of kids now don't buy CDs. They want to go back to vinyl, and there, I think there's something there. I've never understood the actual magic of how it works, but all I know is when I look at the original King Kong with that silly little puppet with hair bristling all over the place and then I see Peter Jackson's perfect King Kong, I know which one I like. One is magical, one involves me, it makes me make that leap of, you know, the suspension of disbelief. And so it's child again, you know, where it used to be a couple of sticks would be a sword fight. Now, you know, that's, that's the stuff that happens and no matter how realistic you can make something, Realism isn't, isn't magic, there's a big difference. I think I think there's a purity in what he does, it's something you don't see. I think we now are getting bored with CG work because we've seen so much of it. I mean, how many spaceships do we need? How many, you know, creatures? They don't have the, the, the uniqueness, and the individuality that Ray would put into his characters. Uh, and And I think people long for that. I think there's something about imperfection that we then can share in that because we're imperfect and suddenly we can be children again. I really do feel that when I when I when I say for example watching Ray's work or original King Kong, I know this is just a puppet, but boy, it's extraordinary. And so your eyes open up and you I think it's a part of your brain that you never switch off. Most people try to as they get older. But there's a part there that when you see Ray's work it opens up those doors again. Ah, I'm a kid again. I know it's not real, but it's better than real. We're, we're creators as well. We have to share in the work because it's not perfect. And as I kind of fall back into Islamic rugs. All Islamic rugs have a fault in them because the weavers say only God can make something perfect, and I don't think the computer is God yet.
0: So that interview hasn't been heard publicly
1: at all Connor has it uh, no no and it's uh it's really a an honor to listen to to these people speaking at ray's memorial um terry gilliam's quote about uh, ray and his digital animation has become i think one of the most uh popular and, and legendary quotes about ray's work and i think it captures uh, the artistry of, of ray Harryhausen perfectly and really nice there's there's so much fondness uh there from from Terry Gilliam talking about Ray's work and uh, and stop motion animation in general, so a lovely thing to to start the episode with, and uh, and yes, uh, Ray's legacy lives on.
0: So Connor, when we came to do this book, we we of course um we worked together um on Richard Hollis's book. I mean, you did most of the legwork on that. Um, how different a challenge was it for you? Because the 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 challenge I think with the posters book was the, was the size and getting them photographed. What were the kind of would you say the bullet point challenges for the for the Lost Movies book?
1: I think um it's just the, the extent of our archive here at the Harryhausen Foundation. There is so much material and we're not exaggerating when we say that Ray never threw anything away. There are there are drawers full of material for, for some of these projects. And um I think, you know, some fans may be aware of some of the more famous uh, lost movies of Ray Harryhausen, the likes of War of the Worlds and Force of the Trojans, and of course there's there's incredible artwork for for those films. And I had I I was aware of some of the artwork, uh, which had never been seen before for these movies that we had in our archive, and always thought. It will be wonderful to to share with share this with the world one day. But what I had actually underestimated is how how much documentation there was for for these films. A movie like um, *Sinbad Goes to Mars*—folders worth of of correspondence and scripts and sketches and ideas—and um, you know, back and forth uh, from Charles Sneer and Ray Harryhausen to artists such as Chris Foss and Seamus Flannery. Um, this was you know an ongoing concern for Ray Harryhausen. Uh, sort of parallel to Clash of the Titans and I think sometimes when you think of lost films or lost movies you think well that was an idea which you know never really came to light but but these were projects these were you know time-consuming um, detailed and very much uh, you know a lot of a passion and hard work went into many of these lost films so so for me that was probably one of the challenges is just the sheer volume of material getting that scanned and processed and sent over to you and uh, and yet there there was a lot of of every from every single one of Ray Harryhausen's movies um there there was material which had been either not used in the finished film or which would been uh, made slightly differently uh, and we have all of those sketches and artworks to to reveal to the world for the first time
0: now ray himself would rarely speak publicly about the unmade films I, I'd i speak to him sometimes and say, you know, Force of the Trojans and, uh, and you know, War of the Worlds and other films, you know, Pe- uh, People of the Mist. Oh, I don't want to talk about those. And so I think they were very much in the past. And for this new book, we, we've tried to find out from other filmmakers, what's their view on Ray's unmade films, and of course, their own unmade projects. And I'm very pleased to say that uh, we have the, the, the grace and the good of the film world who've who've been kind enough to speak to us not only about Ray Harryhausen, but also about their own unmade projects. And some of them are not the names you might associate or expect with um, with Ray Harryhausen. Um, I'll, I'll list them all. I mean, there's five well-known directors who've contributed to what I've called in the book the Filmmakers Forward. So it's five filmmakers contributing to the forward of the book. John Borman, Guillermo del Toro, Mike Hodges, Nicholas Meyer and John Landis. And you know they're speaking on the record for the very first time about their own unrealised projects as well. Um, so even today with current filmmakers, it's it's a tricky and sometimes testy area. So I think that's um, you've seen the book, Connor. Well, how do you feel
1: that that forward works? Yes, I think it's a, an important lesson not just to to animators and filmmakers, but I suppose. Anybody in, in today's sort of a working environment, you have to be very tenacious. You have to have a plan B and a plan C and always be prepared for uh, your, your passion projects that, that maybe don't work out. So, to see all of these different high profile directors and filmmakers talking about their own lost movies, and, and sometimes, you know, there's a, a regretful tone to what they're saying. You know, it's a, it's a shame when something that you, you want to see on the big screen uh, you know, doesn't work out. And uh, I think it's it's instructive just to see how many films that Ray had in his back pocket, so to speak, um, from his huge well of inspiration. And it's, it's clearly something that a lot of these uh, famous names could relate to.
0: Well, the publisher of the book, Tyson Books, asked me to approximate how many films would be in the book, how many are lost projects, because, of course, for lost films, we're including the films Ray planned to make and didn't, the films he actually turned down from third parties, and also scenes cut from his own classic movies. So we said, mm, I think there could be 45, maybe 50. There was nearly 80. So I think we were even surprised, Connor, weren't we? We were in the, the thick of it with the foundation. We probably have the best 360 view of it. And it was a surprise, wasn't it? Just the volume
1: of, of material. Yes, we had a, a thorough look through our, our, all of our archives and all of the imagery that we have and the documentation. And yes, the things kept popping up here and there, things that we. Uh that that maybe we hadn't uh, noticed before, or, or scripts, or ideas, or, or artwork, because of course sometimes Ray would uh, would draw on one side of a piece of paper and then flip it over and, and draw something completely different on the opposite. So so we've got this um, incredible resource, and yes, eighty projects. It's it's hard to believe that somebody could have that many unfilmed projects on top of all the uh, the movies that did get made, and which were, were of course a huge success. But as you as you say, there there's uh, there's material from all of those films, all of those films that people know and love, Jason and the Argonauts, the Sinbad movies and, and and all of Ray Harryhausen's classics, there's material in the book from all of those films that, you know, has never been seen before.
0: It's fascinating to think what could have been and I think on a project where you've you've made a change, particularly with its, uh, the skeleton sequence in Jason and the Argonauts, um, I don't think that's as big a problem as working for months and months on something only to find that it's... Uh, It sort of bites the dust. Um, Now, you mentioned earlier, Connor, the War of the Worlds. Now, we have something very special in the book. Ray did much of his art in charcoal and in pencil. So we wanted to bring a bit of colour into the proceedings and also inject some modern cinema magic. Now, many of you will have heard of Graham Humphreys. He's the iconic poster designer for many of the classic posters of 80s cinema from Nightmare on Elm Street to the Evil Dead, and he works uh, regularly today. In fact, he has a, a new artwork for the American Werewolf in London, Blu-ray 4K, that's just coming out. And he's, he's in much demand. And we, we see his work on uh, on many films being reissued. They have beautiful retro artwork. And I do suspect, uh, Connor, tell me if, if you think this is the case, if Ray was making films today, Graham Humphreys would be the sort of person, if Ray could get him, to do a poster for... Um, People of the Mist, forces of the Trojans—you name it.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I was very excited when I when I heard that that Graham Humphreys was on board and creating new artwork for the um, Lost Movies book. Because if you if you've not heard his name, if you Google uh, Graham Humphreys poster art, you'll see in the images all of these classic poster designs and uh, very uh, sort of in some ways traditional and in, o- in others uh, very modern style of artwork, which. Uh, Really have the the drama and the excitement that uh, Ray Harryhausen's classic posters have, as we saw in the the poster art book from last year. So so yes, um, you know, quite quite an exciting thing to have in the book, and uh, we of course had some of this artwork at San Diego Comic Con in uh, in July because uh, we had some special bookmarks made uh, which used this uh, new Graham Humphreys artwork for War of the Worlds.
0: So I'm joined by Graham Humphreys, who uh, many of you who listen to our Ray Harryhausen podcast will know as an iconic poster creator, an artist and illustrator. And I'm very pleased to say, Graham, that um, you've been instrumental in making one of the iconic images for the new book Harryhausen: The Lost Movies. So thank you very much for that. And uh, if I can kick off by asking you, how did you get interested in uh, in Ray Harryhausen?
3: Um, well, I guess probably like most people of my. Uh... Generation probably seeing um, probably Jason and the Argonauts in the cinema. Um, I was, yeah, however old I was, <laughs> a wee wee kiddie. But um, you know, I was immediately um, enthralled, entranced, and terrified at the same time. I think those skeletons have always stayed with me. And that's I'm still painting skeletons now. Um, I, I was quite obsessed by um, Jason and the Argonauts, and actually just you know quite amazed by the. What to me just seemed uh, complete realism uh, in the animation as well. You know, you just didn't even question that it wasn't actually happening right in front of you on the screen. You know. Yeah, because at the time, if
0: you didn't go to Ray Harryhausen for those sorts of optical effects, you were either putting a man in a suit or doing something that was a conversation on a phone. I just seen some skeletons. Yeah. You know, so he was really the go-to
3: guy, wasn't he? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, I, I, I'd um, probably seen. Um, um, you know the 1930s King Kong at that point on um, you know sort of, uh, TV and uh, um, so I was aware that you know a- animation existed as such but it was um, um, certainly the, the levels of what I perceived to be realism at the time um, were, were quite astonishing and um, you know for an impressionable mind it kind of uh, it, it's something stays with you and um, certainly is part of my formative years um that, that particular film has a special place so and then of course i, I became aware of harry's other work uh, later and um you know sort that out as well but yeah it's what's interesting of course, about this project uh, this book is that it's all the stuff that we never got and um it's, it's kind of quite right that it actually sees some sort of light of day
0: yeah no definitely so when we contacted you um i think I'd been aware of about 40 or so, 45 Lost films, and even the publisher, Titan, said, you know, can you estimate how many pictures, how many words? You know, because from their point of view, they need to know how how big a book is it going to be. And it ended up being nearly 80.
3: That was shocking.
0: So between the films he didn't make, the films he he turned down, and also scenes cut from his own films, quite significant in some cases, sequences, and this beautiful sort of production art. Um, But you you got involved in one film in particular of the Lost movies, so one really caught your eye, Graham, didn't it?
3: Well, yes. Um, um, the War of the Worlds is uh, just uh, one of those uh, fantastic stories I'd read as a child, and um, of course I'd seen the uh, um, the George Powell version, which was, um, yeah, again one of those films that stays with you as well. Uh, absolutely terrifying. Of course, you look at the film now and you see lots of strings holding up the spaceships. And stuff. But you're not aware of that at the time, of course, because you're you're engaged with the film and what, what, what's going on, and um, um, and you know there there are sort of uh, some quite complex. Uh, ideas going on in a film which I, you know, weren't apparent to me as a child, and it'd been interesting to see how um, Ray would have uh, handled some of those concepts. Um, but yeah, I, I was curious to see how uh, his vision would have looked, and um, of course, those production drawings, um, many of them, of course, which you supplied me with, um, you know, revealed um, some sort of moments which, um, you know, were quite surprising. I mean, that that one moment, which of course. Um, I've used in my piece of artwork is the uh, the, the, uh, the scene of Hindenburg being attacked by Martians, which is such a fantastic idea. Anyway, but, um, it's I, I love the idea of um, you know this kind of uh, alien kind of race, kind of slightly you know savage tendency, should we say? Though, but I just love that little moment. I was thought what, how, how, how almost cheeky to get the you know get this historical kind of tragedy and then flow in some Martians at the same time, though, so that had to had to be in a poster. Um, that's what I was asking. The Hindenburgs one of my favorite films, um, for the wise, and uh, you know, just I just love that image of the airship. I mean, I'd love to fly in an airship, and I have not had that like, chance yet, but uh, but you know, it's, it's just one of those things that kind of uh, 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 drew me into this aspect of the project, and um, so my, my poster is built around that. But also, obviously, his drawings of the, um, you know, his design for the Martians and the various spacecraft and such. Um, and then it's throw in a few other sort of odd things as well, though, um, some sort of pop-cultural references as well. Um, and try to imagine the colours that uh, I thought perhaps he might have used. Um, I mean, partly based on that one little clip that we, we know of, the, the little uh, uh, animated oh, the Martian. The Martian. That's right, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you about
0: that because obviously you're you're an illustrator and a and an artist in your own rights, fusing what Ray did and adding colour to it. You know how how difficult was that?
3: Um, I think as soon as the idea was in my head, the colours just naturally followed anyway. Though so, I mean, um, you know, I knew there was going to be an exploding airship, so you could have all those oranges and reds and things, like I got the, I've got Mars in the background and you know, you kind of just always imagine the classic Martian colour to be green as well. So kind of all those colours were really there. And um, um, for me, it wasn't difficult to uh, just construct the thing and colour it up. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, the art, the, it was all kind of there in my mind already. So it's just a question of getting down in paint. Um, but yes, it's interesting when you're, uh, if you're an artist and you, 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 you're working with somebody else's designs, Um, Obviously, uh, using his work, I've augmented it myself, so I've just imagined um, a bit more scale and such like as well. Um, uh, But yeah, I hope I've done it justice.
0: No, you certainly have. It? Obviously, it's appearing in the Harry House and the Lost Movies book. I'm pleased to say it's also appearing in your brand new book as well. It Hung, is. Drawn and Executed. Is That's that right? right? Yes, yes. Tell us so. a bit about that, if you, if you can. Give us yeah, a Yeah, sure. Peek. It's, a, it's
3: a kind of follow up book to um, a, a book that was uh, published about four years ago called Drawing Blood, uh, which was a gallery edition book, uh, kind of turned to luxury edition, um, which you know, made it an expensive item. I, I, All that, well, that was out of my hands, really, though. But it uh, was a chance to get. Um, the body of work, you know, sort of 30, 40 years worth of work, um, sort of key pieces in book form, but since that book um, I've been busier than ever, and so there's literally, uh, I think think two-thirds of this new book um, are are all new pieces since four years ago, and one of them is, of course, this lovely piece which um, uh, happily um, is going to be revealed before my book comes out, so there's no clash of schedules there, but... um, uh, yeah, so uh, hung, drawn and executed. I was just trying to follow up with a, a title which, you know, uh match drawing blood. Um you know, drawing blood it's you know very much, you know, reference to the horror stuff, but it's also about, you know, trying to squeeze money out of clients sometimes though. Um <laughs> but uh hung drawn and caught, yeah, uh, ex well, caught it should be, but it's you know, hanging pictures, drawing pictures and then executing a brief. You know, that that was the kind of little loose joke in there though, but um, But yeah, I think the piece fits very well within the context of the book, and um, there's a good variety of stuff in there, Uh, so that's coming out in November at some point. Uh, And that will be an affordable edition as opposed to the previous luxury edition.
0: Excellent. Now, lastly, I just want to ask you, from a sort of a museum curating point of view, Ray kept as much of his original materials as possible. There's many things that we don't have. We'd love to go back and collect and so on. From your point of view now, because so many artists work digitally, there isn't a physical manifestation of an original sketch and and a painting and so on. In terms of your own collection, your own archive, how far back do you have original materials? Or Do studios own some of the poster masters or how does that work?
3: Well, in theory, um, all original artwork, because all, all my work is paint on paper, it's not digital at all. Mm. Uh, uh, in theory, all that original artwork is my property, that, that's just the way the law works, which is you know quite white as well. I mean, people buy my skills and then the, the work goes to print, um, you know, it gets reproduced, it's not the actual physical item. Uh, so all that original artwork is supposed to be mine. Of course, what used to happen is you'd send it off to the printers and go back to the client, and they just wouldn't bother returning it. And yeah, you know, stuff pops up sometimes. Collectors in the states, for instance, might have a piece of work, and I think, oh, where did that? Ever, how did that get there? You wow. know, where did that disappear to? Gosh. And um, it's it's funny how you can trace the trail sometimes. And it's usually you know, artwork gets found in um, garages. You know, maybe somebody used to work at a company, and they just took a whole bunch of stuff home and you know, that's where it stays. Um, but I do have the original artwork for the Evil Dead, which was the first, you know, a campaign which gave me some sort of um, uh, exposure, I guess. Though iconic, really. yeah. It's really and iconic. Um, I did sell the Nightmare on Elm Street painting to pay for the the, the previous yeah. book, um, but i still got the Nightmare on Elm Street part two and i do have a lot of stuff which goes way back i mean i've had to get uh, i did have to get rid of some work just simply because it's just i have drawers full of this stuff so i try to keep key work but i mean certainly i've probably got most things which were painted over the last 20 years and um except for those i've sold uh now but uh, but yeah the, the 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 piles of artwork just keep growing i've got rolls and rolls um, I, everything's painted on paper, so it, it does roll quite easily and it's the best way to keep it, I find. Um, but literally on my desk right now, I've got probably about 30 rolled up tubes. I keep thinking Dutch. I'm going to spill coffee over this later. <laughs> so I keep thinking, oh, I must take that home and protect it somehow. But of course, you know, you get caught up with your work and so you're just always painting. And um, another roll appears, you know, uh, as, you, as you do the next job. And um, yeah, there's a little pile building right now.
0: Chris Foss, um, the illustrator Chris Foss, he, he um, worked on Sinbad Goes to Mars, and I interviewed him for the book, and he has um, virtually none of his original materials, and his daughter Imogen has been terrific in trying to source them back. And uh, when they had a book out a couple of years ago... They basically scan the covers of novels and then try to Photoshop out the the text and so on to try and show what the original artwork looked like. Because as you said, once it's sent to whether it's advertising agent or publishers and so on, the artwork doesn't come back. Um, but Chris never really sought out his pieces either. He never sort of searched them out. So the four pieces we have from Sinbad goes to mars one of which is unfinished um he finished for the book um which is really which is really amazing so at the foundation we're finding out these stories of illustrators and how in the past you know illustrators weren't really treated with the respect that they perhaps enjoy today
3: yeah i mean it's it's, it's um very old you know over 40 years uh, plus of doing this um you know you're, you're either just a jobbing artist that people would uh, bring in and um you know, you weren't uh, given any credit at all for stuff. I mean, you know, you look at uh, the whole body of um, video VHS work um, of a period and, um, you know, people cannot identify particular illustrators. I mean, I, I get asked quite often, you know, this is a video, obviously VHS cover It's not your work, but do you know who the artist was? And I had no idea. I mean, you know, it was just a jobbing thing. There are so many VHS covers being painted in the 80s that... Um, you know, you just you can't trace these people. I mean, sometimes there are people who weren't uh, doing dedicated work for a particular genre, but would find themselves um, getting suddenly, a commission quickly well, yeah, for it's this or just, that. It's just a job. Yeah, you know, yeah of, of course. Many, much in the same way that um, you know a lot of uh, fantastic film posters were so iconic of an era. I mean, I, I was a big fan of all the disaster movies, hence the Hindenburg reference. Yeah, right. And yeah, you know, look at the Towering Inferno, Psycho Adventure, all those artists were. Meteor even had a beautiful yeah, poster, didn't yeah. it? But all those yeah. artists were specialists in different areas. Like there was one guy who did Civil War paintings, another guy did Native American Indian paintings, and yeah, they, they had a specialist area, but then this job would come along, and so suddenly you get this kind of, you know, the Towering Inferno, or the Hindenburg, you know, uh, poster, um, just completely uh, off on a tangent from what they would normally do. Um, and yeah, you know, for me, those are the posters I, I, I know of their work really well but I don't know the other body of work though so but yeah um, I mean for myself uh, after um, The Evil Dead you know became quite a quite successful film um, I got a lot of VHS cover work in, Uh and I did do a fair amount horror based work but I was always doing other work as well, so a lot of the educational publication stuff—I mean, just stuff that you know you'll you'll never see. Hopefully, uh, I still have some of it um, in the archives. Uh, but it's within the last probably 15 years that it's um, gone back to all being pretty much horror, which is you know the stuff I love doing, and that's probably a thank you to um, Arrow Video more than anybody else. So who started um, you know this this idea of um, uh, commissioning new artwork much in the way of in a nod to the 1980s really because a lot of the films were reissues of 1980s films anyway um, like
0: American World in London I've, yeah. I've pre-ordered it and yeah. said on it you know new artwork by Graham Humphreys so it's actually you are a selling point in itself now which is wonderful like Ray Harryhausen in the past he wasn't he weren't called Ray Harryhausen films but now your artwork is defined as, as Graham Humphreys and people are drawn to you because you have your own fan base Graham
2: well
3: I hope so <laughs> um, I mean it's, it's uh, I, I, the pressure is to not disappoint. Um, and with the, the funny thing with the American Wolf in London art is that was commissioned by as a, well, it was a private commission for an individual who just happens to love the film and just wanted their own version of a poster. But um, you know I had to be guided by what they wanted and didn't want in that image. So f- with Arrow's use of it, um, they, they licensed the image from me. Um, probably if I'd been commissioned directly by Arrow it would be a different image completely Um, I I know this for a fact anyway Though, so um, there there are things in there which I I feel should have been in there but they're not however that's the way it is so Arrow now had this piece of artwork which is really directed by the individual who made the original commission Mm. but you know the great thing is that um, for instance I was at the uh, London Film and Comic Con um, a couple of weeks ago and uh, David Norton was a guest there and, oh yes, I saw and, a picture and, online Yeah, so he kind right of ended up signing about I, I think I sold about 45 copies of the print Oh, uh, splendid And he's just obviously endlessly signing this same image And eventually he came down to say hello Saying, you know, I actually love the image And um, So I was explaining at Arrow we we're going to be using it on their uh, release Because John Landis had seen the art as well
0: Well, we we're about to ask that Because John's yeah. a big friend of the Foundation Has contributed
3: to Lost Movies book What does John think? Well, I, of course I'm not watching, but uh, apparently he, he um, it was his decision uh, which, which drove Arrow to use that on their oh, new splendid. edition, though. so yes, oh, it was his choice. Oh, wow. Well, that's great. What a lovely
0: synergy for you to be involved with Ray Harryhausen. Well, of course, the other the funny thing is that um, sadly I'm John not going to be...
3: Uh, with you for the launch of the book, mm. because I'll all be in Wales in the Brecon Beacons looking at the um, locations for American Wolf in London, so the oh. irony is going to be there somewhere. Well, now you've,
0: you've almost revealed the date you're going to be
3: there, so some of your fan base now might follow you up. <laughs> well, I'll, 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 you can buy me a drink in the Slaughtered Lamb. <laughs> Crane Humphreys, thank you very much. My pleasure.
0: And Graham mentioning there his own book, Hung, Drawn and Executed, which uh, by all accounts will be a, another must-buy for uh, for fans of the genre. Now, Connor, you have a clip here from my documentary, Ray Harryhausen, Movements into Life, when uh, Ray discusses some of the test footage that was shot for a key character in Clash of the Titans. So should we have a listen to that one now?
4: For Pegasus to be convincing... He must first be a real horse, believable in all his movements, with the added complications
2: of flight. The flying horse was very difficult because everybody is familiar with the movements of a horse. And so we kept the movements limited as much as possible. But uh, the very fact that the horse has wings, you have to imagine how a creature of that nature would uh, move in the air. Uh, We tried shooting tests of it with just the legs hanging and the wings flapping and it looked very uh, uh, uninteresting. So we had to give it sort of a galloping appearance to keep everything in motion.
0: Fabulous. Now, that footage, I would love to find. I I remember saying to Ray when I was making the documentary, oh, could I see the footage, please? And uh, he said, oh, no, no, no one's going to see that footage. Um, So bearing that in mind, and bearing in mind the fact that Ray rarely spoke about the Lost Films project, what, from the ethical point of view, Connor, do you think is the... uh, I mean, I have to answer this question as a trustee as well. Um, What, from the ethical point of view, do you think is the right approach to releasing workings out test footage things that perhaps ray might not have wanted the world to have seen
1: well i think for ray harryhausen's animation he so rarely um, filmed something which wasn't used in the final picture because he learned early on basically learned early on not to make mistakes uh and so um if something if something didn't quite work out, um, that was a you know that's a day's worth of of, of footage, which is, which has is gone to waste. So there's it's only on very rare occasions that the there may be something that exists which wasn't used in the final film. And I personally think as an archival exercise, um, you know we're we're duty bound to to preserve um, any of any any of this existing footage and uh, use it to to explore and educate from. From Ray Harryhausen's legacy I mean it's it's so fascinating to look into the techniques and and the ideas behind what he was doing and I think it's um personally something I would also love to see and uh, you know very instructive as well to see that that process of of examining Pegasus flying and, and Ray realizes that despite the amount of work that's gone in it it just isn't it doesn't look right yet and uh obviously the the cog started turning in his mind because he, he found a, an elegant solution which uh which gave the character life and uh, which went on to, to star in the film that we know and love. Of course, one of our favourite interviews in the last year was
0: um, one of a bit of a scoop for you, Connor, wasn't it? You got a bit of an exclusive with uh, a member of um, British Television Royalty, I think it would be fair to say. What happened?
1: Yes, that's right. Uh, I've always been a huge fan of uh, The League of Gentlemen and, uh, and their various television shows and other projects over the years. And um, again, this this stemmed from from our our good friend Alan Friswell. He told me that the League of Gentlemen had approached Ray Harryhausen um, to to work upon their two thousand and five full length movie, The League of Gentlemen's Apocalypse. And so I uh, I contacted Mark Gatis on Twitter. He's always uh, fantastic in in sharing uh, our posts and and. Uh, Whenever one of Ray's films is on television, he, he always very kindly shares that with the world so that everyone can, can tune in and get settled down to, to watch these classic movies. Uh, and yes, uh, Mark Gatiss very kindly agreed to, to meet up with me in Edinburgh uh, during the League of Gentlemen's uh, tour uh, last year in 2018. Uh, so I had I had a great chat with, with Mark about uh, how how much Ray's films had meant to him growing up and, and Ray's ongoing legacy. But I just had to ask, I had to ask about this. Was it true that uh, that they had approached Ray Harryhausen in 2005 to work with them. And this was his answer.
4: Yes, it's true. Well, of course, we, we wanted to have a stop-motion monster in it. So what else would we do but ask Ray Harryhausen? I mean, I, I knew he was basically long retired, but you, you never know. <laughs> I'm always doing this. You never. There's no harm in asking. So uh, we, we wrote to him and... Um, we had this we've got this sequence and i mean it was obviously a ridiculous long shot but we thought we could really let rest if we didn't do it and then um i met him at the empire awards which must have been about 2004 or five um and uh you know i knew his voice so well from all the documentaries he sounded the way i, I want god should speak i think uh, he was very. Uh, he was like. He said, "Oh, you, uh, you, 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 you asked me to do your picture." Uh, 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 he was something like Jimmy Stewart. It was something. I love that sort of slightly hesitant. Like his voice was like hickory, hickory wood. Oh, I, well, I, I, I'm very flattered, but i have long since retired. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, God, it was like touching the hem of his garment it was so thrilling. Um, uh, it, it was it was very very sweet and I, again I just gushed and said like which he, what he must have heard it fi- every five minutes which is that he sort of made my childhood and all our childhood so um so we did in the end um a company called McKinnon Saunders did our two we had two we had a, we had a three-headed monster and a sort of homunculus uh, and, and then they were done with stop motion so it was our little
1: nod to uh, to raise legacy. And it was a, a wonderful sequence and obviously the homunculus calls back to the golden voyage of yeah. Sinbad uh, and the three-headed monster very reminiscent of the Hydra mm. and you were, of course, the, the actor that was fighting this yeah. creature. How did you feel to, to fight a spot-motion uh, creation?
4: Well, again, it's one of those pinch-yourself moments when you find yourself doing the thing you used to, <laughs> you used to read. I remember reading interviews with people like Todd Armstrong saying it was so bloody exhausting <laughs> and it really is very difficult. I stood there with a spear... Fighting nothing for hours and hours and hours, and trying to choreograph where the, where the tail would switch, and things you
1: think this is exactly what they always said it was like, It is really hard, <laughs> but I knew it would be worth it. And uh, just as we're speaking about the preservation of models, whatever happened to the models that you use? Well
4: in it, it's interesting now, because um, by absolute coincidence, someone sent us a link to uh, eBay or something, and the homunculus was being sold. And Reese bought it. This is only about last year. I, I have no idea what I'm to the the hydro the three hundred one. It, it's vanished. It's sh- probably. I mean, I don't think it would been destroyed. It could be out there somewhere. But you know, that's that's only twelve, thirteen years ago, and already they've vanished. You know? So um,
1: this shows you the uh, the foresight that Ray had and in, in established. In yeah. Collection. Absolutely. He wanted it. He didn't want it to to go. He didn't want to see his models on eBay, and even though that didn't exist at the time, he didn't want to see his models. Uh, going on auction and kind of being tucked away he wanted the world to see them and learn from them Uh, but that's very interesting that you saw your your own homunculus Mm. appear on auction just because that seems like a very recent maybe reese can lend it to you for the exhibition well that would actually (laughs) be really good that's the kind of thing because people that have been influenced by well you want the legacy don't you yeah people because we don't just see ray as a step on the ladder we see him as somebody who continues to influence Mm. and as you mentioned before Ch- when children see raised films, um, there's something intangible about them yes, that reaches out. Absolutely. I did a screening of Seventh Voyage in Glasgow and it was all 10 year olds, and mm. I was worried because mm. they've they all got iPhones, they've all, mm. they've all watched Marvel films, they, they might not pay attention. At the end of the film, every hand went up and it was, How do you make these models? Can you do stop motion now? How do you, yeah. how do you work? How do you. I think
4: that what punches through completely, and you know, the, the, obviously things do date, the performances date more, I think, um, particularly the romantic bits. They, they feel like they're from another age whereas Torrin Thatcher and Tom Baker uh, uh et cetera they, they really last I think those vill- brilliant villainous performances um and what's her name uh, who plays uh, Zenobia oh Margaret Whiting Margaret Whiting uh, Jeremy and I have we literally do this maybe once a month something will come up and we'll say not enough <laughs> <laughs> not enough it never goes away um but uh, but I can yeah if if you get the right circumstances I think uh, and, uh, children will always be entranced by them because they are charming. There's, there's something indefinably beautiful about them. Which and you, you know again without sounding luddite, CG dates so quickly. I saw Alien Three recently again, and the CG in that is incredible. And and of course the. The, the, the first alien does not date because it's it's got nothing dateable in it in that sense, you know. Um, and so, by dint of of it being what it was, superdynamation, etc., uh, in its time, but it's 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 Ray, isn't it? It's it's it's
1: Ray that that lasts. Well, that seems like a perfect way to, to end the interview. Thanks so much for your time, Mark. And would love to invite you to our major exhibition in 2020, which we'll have everything all of our archive uh, at the national galleries of scotland um to celebrate race centenary
4: try and stop me
0: and you can see more in the book we have some beautiful photography and and more of the story of the league of gentlemen's apocalypse which if you haven't seen it i would urge you to uh to get hold of a dvd it's a great film
1: yes some wonderful stop motion in there and uh Despite the fact that Ray didn't work work on the film in the end, I think it was a a marvellous tribute to to Ray Harryhausen's techniques and uh, his style of filmmaking. So, yes, definitely worth checking out.
0: Now, the book's released on the 10th of September. It's a large coffee table format book, and we had so many contributions from unexpected parties as well. We think of Ray Harryhausen as a cinema filmmaker... But in the 1990s, he was involved with Cosgrove Hall, who were the leading stop-motion animators for television, making classic series, Chawton and the Wheelies, and Wind in the Willows, of course, uh, the BAFTA-winning Wind in the Willows. Now, the story of Odysseus, or the legend of Odysseus, depending on who you speak to from the production, was a hugely ambitious series that would have been wall-to-wall stop-motion. And we were very fortunate to speak to Um, leading animator and illustrator Jonathan Webb who not only worked on the project but gave us exclusive access to his own personal archive especially for the book so I was you know I was constantly opening emails whether it was from you Connor or from contributors and I'd have to sort of stand up again because I get a sudden rush of blood to the head where I would suddenly see some artwork that I'd never seen before that I knew that no one else had seen and I was just like really thrilled and you know when you get like super excited and you can't think straight, that was happening regular. I'm not sure if it's an old age thing with me, but I was so thrilled to be finding all of these things that were going into the book. I just wish I hadn't written the book so that I could see it all with fresh eyes. But here's my interview I did at the British Film Institute with uh, with Jonathan Webb.
5: Um, I had a uh, a a file and portfolio of work that was, it was from the time I, I was working at Cosgrove Hall, and uh, we were working on a project called uh, uh, Odysseus Legend, uh, with, in conjunction with Ray Harryhausen, and I've got some work left over from that. So I think, um, yeah, it was paintings and sculptures and uh, character designs. And also a little bit of script writing as well that I'd done and storyboards. So there's quite a body of work there that I'd done on that on that project. And that was from about 19, was that 1999, ninety-nine, two thousand, I think. Yeah, yeah. And you were using
0: some unusual new technology at the time as well. Well at you? the time
5: we were using I think it was the first time I'd ever used Photoshop. So we were using I was using it in a very basic way. So I was sort of drawing the characters and things. Um, uh, with uh, in pencil and then scanning them and then using using photoshop to basically sort of color them in and, and paint them up so it wasn't if i was using photoshop now i'd have done it very very differently but it was like the first project we'd we'd got photoshop on and we'd just come off a, a project as well doing um we'd done two terry pratchett cartoons um weird sisters and soul music at cosgrove hall and they were cartoons and we'd we were using uh, we were drawing them in a very sort of linear characters in a very sort of linear way so I sort of I sort of carried that style over a little bit just because that was what I'd been doing on those two projects and carried that on a little bit onto the Ray Harryhausen project when I look back I wish I'd drawn some of the characters slightly differently um, because I don't know Harryhausen and those things they always have a very sort of classically drawn style about them and uh, I look at the characters now and I, I, I like what I'd drawn but I think the style could have been a bit more in keeping with that sort of Harryhausen Harryhausen look. But, um, it was quite
0: yeah. an ambitious project so it wasn't a feature film it was a major television series. Yeah, that was the idea. And it would have yeah. been wall-to-wall animation compared yes, to a Harryhausen yeah. film which had some animation in it. Yeah, it wasn't so so, was so
5: Dynamation was I suppose Harryhausen's um, label for that technique um, uh, but this, this sort of came the idea came from craig carrington who was who was the sort of driving force behind it and um, the idea really was to do the whole thing full animation and uh, i think we were talking about it before and you said well you'd still be animating (laughs) it now (laughs) and uh, i think we would because there was so there's a massive cast of characters you know human characters as well as creatures you know i mean armies and soldiers and uh, all, all, all sorts and it, was, it would have been vast so I think it was uh, it would have been a very very big production and in a way it maybe would have, it would have been had the thing carried on and been finished it might have got to the point where it would be, become apparent that it maybe would be more practical to film the human characters with actors and do the, do the creatures as the stop motion more like you know what you would imagine a Harry Housen movie to be but yeah, doing it as wall-to-wall stop-motion, and I think the idea was as well was to build tabletop sets and then expand them with digital. But this was at the very beginning of that sort of technology, so it was. Although um, Jurassic Park and you know, films like that had been done, it wasn't something that Cosgrove Hall had had a great deal of experience with. So it was we were sort of finding our feet with it, really. I suppose
0: if you think *Wind in the Willows*, though, that was top-end animation, yeah, yeah. and it was it was wall-to-wall,
5: you know, stop-motion, yeah, and, yeah. and that kind of worked, didn't it? It did work, and it, you know, *Wind in the Willows* is you know is a beautiful production, and anyone who remembers it, you know, is remembers it very, very fondly. But I think the scale of what they were, what we were trying to do with uh, *with Odysseus* was on, was on a on a massive cinematic scale, and you know, as a designer and someone involved in it as well, we were, you know at times just told to go off and use our imagination what could you imagine happening here or you know I think Craig had got an idea that they uh, that, that Odysseus and and his soldiers get to an island and what happens on the island so the whole thing was like I've no idea let's see what what happens and that was uh, I designed um uh, some Mohican centaurs and those, those those were for that for that um for that episode uh, and I sort of I did some artwork of them fighting the uh, fighting uh, Cyclops, so it didn't make much sense in the general story of Odysseus, but it was really try, just trying to work out some visual things that could happen um, on that island and I think I'd just seen um, the last of the Mohicans, and I sort of put that with together with a Harryhausen idea, and I just thought well, Mohican centaurs, and I imagined the the hair going down the back, and I thought. It's too good a too good an opportunity to miss. So I, I thought I'd thought I'd combine those those sequences and have them sort of uh, attacked by the by the centaurs. But I wanted you to see the top of the centaurs and I wanted you to see the the hooves, of the feet, uh, and not see them to not see those things until they until they leapt out and attacked. It's so a big surprise, just, Yeah. It? So you yeah. just assume that they're they're, they're, they're Mohicans on horseback. Mm. You know, what are they doing in Oak Creek? It doesn't make much sense historically, but I thought from a visual point of view it would, um, it would be a good thing, and uh, and I think the idea of them fighting a uh, a, a, a giant cyclops as, as well would be would be fun. So yeah, it wasn't the whole thing wasn't scripted at that point, and it was come up with some ideas and let's see what what we can come up with. So. We think of how television was commissioned
0: in those days. If you went to a commissioning editor and, and pitched that and showed those drawings, yeah. they would they would look at the landscape and think, "Well, this isn't like anything else that's been no. commissioned." Therefore, no. warning, warning, yeah. will Robertson, yeah. stay away. Whereas now, you can imagine coming out of a meeting with uh, a yeah. like Netflix yeah. and then being very excited by that, and it's something new and different. I mean, and it yeah. seems like it was decades ahead of its it time. Was,
5: it was decades ahead of its time, and it was. Um, you know, a massive amount of optimism going with it and working on it, but um, if we'd have done it now, I mean, Game of Thrones and those sort of long, you know, vast visual effects and long storylines, you know, I mean, that's what Odysseus is. It's a, it's a 10 year, 20 year story, and you could do it now, and it would be, I'd love to see it done, done on a scale like Game of Thrones or something like that. But at that time, and doing it entirely as stop motion was very, very ambitious and very uh, optimistic. So where would Ray have fitted in with all of this? Well, I mean, we had we had a couple of meetings with Ray at Cosgrove Hall, and he was doing his his designs in London at home, and we were sort of working on our designs at uh, Cosgrove Hall in Manchester, and we I think we had an initial meeting with him, which was which was brilliant. I don't know, was a massive Harryhausen fan and one of the reasons I'm in, obviously in the industry is because of my love of Harryhausen and those, those fantasy movies so just meeting him on a professional on a professional level was was also he, he'd retired by that time so working in the industry never ever imagined I'd, I'd get a chance to sort of work on a project with him so to have that sort of fall in my lap at that point was um, was amazing so we we had um, an initial meeting with him and I think he came up again and I'd sculpted I'd done a sculpt of Poseidon um, which I'd, I'd sort of envisaged slightly differently from the usual sort of half man half fish I sort of imagined him more as a sort of shark type creature sort of very sleek and impressive shark sort of monster and Harryhausen saw that he got very excited at the prospect of and he was sort of and it was, it was a plasticine painted sculpture but I could see he sort of wanted to move it and wanted to animate it that was, from my point of view that was a, you know, really thrilling to see him you know genuinely excited at the prospect of animating something that we've designed it was you know, great but he was working on his designs down in London as well and we, we didn't, I think we saw some of those but he was quite um, I mean the thing, we didn't see enough of his work I don't think at the time it would have been nice to have had more meetings with him um, and see what he was doing, see that we were going in the, in the same direction. And I, he did do a Cyclops sculpt, he did do a Cyclops sculpt, and I designed the Cyclops. And he saw it, and I, I'd done it pretty much as a tribute to his Cyclops from Seventh Voyager Simbad*. I'd, I'd exaggerated the anatomy and uh, made it more sort of muscular and. Uh, but it was definitely a, a Harryhausen Cyclops uh, on steroids, basically. Um, uh, and he saw it, and he, he, he said he couldn't understand why it got sort of goat legs. <laughs> and when he said that, I couldn't quite—I didn't know what to say because I thought this is it's obviously your Cyclops. And um, so I think he was—he was, he was going to do a Cyclops that just had human legs. And. Um, but I, I definitely wanted, if, it was, if there was going to be a Cyclops in it, I wanted it to look like a Harry House and what you'd want to see of a Harry Housen and Cyclops. He definitely had goat legs and, you know, horns and, you know, things like that. Uh, yeah. Um,
0: so did you get the idea that Ray was going to sort of supervise the stop motion? Yeah, or do you think he was going to be hands-on and do key scenes? I would
5: love to have, if it went ahead, I would love to have had... I mean, it, it was a vast, vast production had it had it gone ahead and I would love to have had I think Ray was about 80 79 or 80 at the time it would have been a joy to have had him be hands-on with with whatever he wanted to take on that would have been amazing but um, I don't know what his plan was for it I think he wanted to design we were basically I think trying to just do something in in his shadow in his honor really just something to you know to show what we thought Harryhausen film at that era would, would look like. But uh, if he if he you know, I'm sure if Ray wanted to come and animate, we'd have we'd have you know, would have he'd have been animating all he wanted, you know. It would have been great. Yeah. So when we speak about Ray's lost movies
0: and we've spoken yeah. extensively, Jonathan, yeah. about that and what what's in the book, when we first spoke, were you surprised that there was enough sort of material to, to make a book because in some ways it's exciting but also it's incredibly depressing as it well is, isn't
5: it it is it is I think I think what's surprising is Harry Housen made so many films and it's a very very making a, a film like you know Clash of the Titans or um, you know uh, uh, any of Har- Harry Housen's movies is a long process pre-production process and the effects process that Harry Housen did I was I was surprised he had that amount of time to make 80 films that never got made so he he was working on all those productions and and sometimes actually quite well into production before it it would collapse or not or not happen so I was I was kind of surprised and impressed with him even more that he'd worked on all of those other productions and it is it's very very sad There's, there's some real gems there that when you when you read about them or you hear about them you'd love to have seen I'd love to have seen Ray's War of the Worlds there's so many films that, that sort of get made that are similar to Ray's work that we've, we've discussed. And some of them are good films, but you think, oh, if only... I just want to see Ray's touch on that. I want to see what Ray's creatures would have been been like in that movie, in that in that situation. So, yeah, it's very, very sad that those a lot of those films didn't get made. But I'm so impressed with him that he managed to do 80 films and, and get all the ones that he did get made. Because... No one else was doing that at the time. You know, from the 50s to, to 1980, I don't know, um, Ray kept the fantasy movie going, you know, the fantasy genre going. There, were, there weren't many other movies that you could see on a regular basis every every four or whatever years. A, Ray, a Harryhausen movie would come out. It was very, very exciting. There weren't many others. You know, the, this, the argument or the discussion between CGI and, and stop motion is, it's an interesting one because, because Ray Harryhausen's work, you'd never mistake it as being real life. It's not, you never think you're looking at something that's real. But you do know you're looking at something that's really there. And if you're a child, you know that thing is physically real, even if you know it's not a living, breathing thing. But it's, it has a quality about it that is kind of real and sort of realistic, even if you know it's, it's a, a model of some sort. And it's moving on screen, but you don't quite know. I remember watching them when I was a kid, and I didn't quite know what I was looking at. And they have a quality that makes it kind of magical, sort of dreamlike. Yeah, yeah. It? And I think Harryhausen always said that. He said it's not—it's um, fantasy—and I think that's what you're looking at when you watch those films. They—they're uh, not—they're not, they're not um, those visual, those special effects are not absolutely 100% real, but they are have a real quality about them and an unrealness about them as well. It's um, that makes them magic. And I think um, a lot of CGI now can look very, very realistic, or you know, incredibly, you know, photorealistic. Um, but they don't—they don't necessarily have the same magic or whatever it is that, that Ray's Ray's had about them. Well, Ray.
0: Um, well, we regularly get asked at um, different conventions and talks, "What did Ray think of CG? You know, he yeah. was alive. What yeah. did he like? It did he disapprove?" Yeah. And I think people want us to say, "Oh no, Ray disapproved and said it's, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's the wrong thing to do." Ray was always a technical innovator. So yeah. when he had the yeah. opportunity to colorize some of his black and white films digitally, he yeah. looked into that yeah. process, and, and that was very successful. So Ray always felt that the pencil, whether it be a digital pencil or a real yeah. pencil, yeah. needed the thought behind it, and yeah. he thinks that you know that. Digital is great. It's a great innovation. And had he been around when digital was yeah, was, was flourishing, so he sure would have embraced
5: that's what it. Have done. Mm. Yeah, the work I do now is largely digital. I work largely digitally now, um, and it is a tool. But I think very often it's how it's it's how it's used. And I think certain you know certain films and directors use it in a sort of blase way that sort of I don't know. The, the creatures in Harry Harryhausen movies always going to get a good entrance. There's always a good entrance when Harryhausen's movies come on. There's something special about them. And I think um, CGI can, I don't know, feel sometimes sort of lazily introduced, I suppose. I don't know. Um, I
0: suppose it's, if it's taken
5: you 18 months
0: to craft yeah, just the yeah, right yeah. moment. You want to give you it want <laughs> make sure that the cloppity clopity yeah, clop, yeah, the cyclops yeah. coming in, yeah. it's going to be something yeah. that's going to turn heads. Yeah. Because yeah. If, you, if you really blood, sweat, and tears yeah. from creating the creature, yeah. moulding it, people often forget that the, yeah, the construction there's a, there's a job real, that's involved.
5: Yeah, real artistry but, behind. But as you say, you know, if yeah. it's something
0: that you can dial in, I mean, yeah. not to take anything away from digital filmmaking, which of course no, is you know right. is king at the moment. But stop motion is back, isn't it? When we think of Isle of Dogs, yeah, yeah. we think of Leica Studios, yeah, Kubo the Two amazing. Strings, yeah. Top box office yeah. hits yeah. are working in stop motion, yeah. photochemical yeah. in some cases. Yeah. Yeah.
5: yeah, now there's amazing work being done there in stop motion, um, and there's you know there are there are digital applications that or digital things that enable the stop motion to be even more fluid and more um, yeah more fluid and, and flowing than, than Harryhausen's work, and I, I sometimes. I think when I saw Box Trolls, um, I saw a preview of Box Trolls, and I thought I was watching CGI, because it was so smooth, the animation was so smooth, I couldn't work out what I was looking at. And it was only later that I realized it was stop motion. And I sometimes miss that sort of quality that stop motion sort of naturally has. And I think because you can make stop motion very, very smooth and fluid now, directors and animators, feel that they have to they're almost under pressure if if the animation is jerky say right you've done it wrong do it again and i I sometimes think that it's got that's almost the quality that that it sort of naturally has and you should maybe embrace it
0: fascinating connor because i think ray would have embraced digital technology it's a question you get asked a lot isn't it when when you give talks about cgi as if it's a as if it's a negative thing
1: no it is something that people regularly ask at our talks and presentations and uh, particularly when 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 Vanessa's with us um, she can she can uh, speak to the fact that her dad enjoyed a lot of computer generated animation and a lot of, of movies Avatar and Dinotopia and Jurassic Park all the all of these great films so I think as you mentioned in the interview there with Jonathan Ray saw CGIs as another tool which could be used for good or for, for ill and uh, he certainly wasn't opposed in principle to, to the use of computer generated technology and you rightly said that, that you know, if, if Netflix had existed in the 1990s, who knows what may have happened with the uh, Odysseus project? Because if you think about some of the series which are being commissioned by Netflix and, and other streaming platforms just now, um, you know, there's, there's every chance that this would have been something that they may have been interested in.
0: Well, look at Dark Crystal. I am a mega fan of Dark Crystal. I know that film well. Um, coincidentally, Titan Books brought out the ultimate visual history for Dark Crystal, which is one of their big sellers. Um, an amazing film, not appreciated as much as it should have been at the time. It's, it still made money. It was still a viable project. Um, and rightly now being brought back by Netflix in this prequel series, it looks stunning. We, we saw a, a a preview of it at San Diego Comic-Con and it looks spectacular. And you just can't imagine a British TV network saying, oh yeah, we'll give you the money for that. (laughs) They wouldn't even let you in the door.
1: And yes, I'm sure that if someone had told you in 1996 that there was going to be a dark crystal. Multi-million television show, you would, you know, you would have been quite sceptical uh, about the likelihood of that happening. So the world has changed in many ways, and it, you know it would have been a wonderful thing to see the Odysseus project come to life with all this wonderful artwork and, and with with Ray Harryhausen's involvement. But uh, we've got, we've got the next best thing, I suppose. We have all of the the material that Jonathan shared for us f- for your book, and it's it's really great to see, and it really is tantalising as to what could have been. Thank you for listening to episode 27 of the Ray Harryhausen podcast. We had so much content for this particular show that we've decided to split it into two parts. This ends part one. Stay tuned and look out for part two of this episode coming very soon featuring interviews with conservator Alan Friswell, animators Mark Caballero and Seamus Walsh from Screen Novelties, and League of Gentlemen star Mark Gatiss.
0: Copyright in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered Scottish charity, number SC001419, 2019. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in part without written permission from the Foundation. The views expressed within these podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com where you can find our Facebook and Twitter links.